I do not know a section of the scriptures that is more devastating and disturbing than this particular chapter 6 from the book of Revelation and the ones that follow soon thereafter. When we read the text here, we are instantly reminded of scenes from the most graphic Hollywood horror or disaster films, only much more. And as we study these chapters closely, we begin to realize that it is actually from these pages that the screenwriters have clearly been borrowing some of their most terror-filled imagery over the years. As I've studied the text myself, I have had to resist the temptation time and time again to bring this sermon series to a much quicker close than anticipated. To just be done with this book as soon as possible, to walk away saying, this is just too much. It's too harsh. It's too violent. It's too upsetting to be of any possible use. But I've sat with the text now for a few weeks. And I've become more and more convinced that this part of God's Word invites us to consider together two great mysteries that are just too important to our lives and to our world to ignore as hard as they are. I say mysteries because I'm not sure that you and I are going to ever understand or be at peace with them completely in this life. Just as there are some things which our children could not understand until they were further along in life's journey, there are some aspects of how God thinks and how God acts that we may never fully grasp until we stand fully mature before Him one day. There are just certain dimensions of His purpose that we are called to accept, to take on faith, to trust, much as from time to time we say to our own children, you'll just have to believe it's got to be this way. And so we will tend to question God's behavior here, much as our children, when they are young, question ours. But it does not make that behavior less wise or just because we have questions. One of the disturbing puzzles that meets us in this part of the Bible is what I would call the mystery of wrath unleashed. Beginning with chapter 6 and then continuing on through the bulk of the rest of the book of Revelation, at least through chapter 20, we're given a variety of vivid descriptions of the horrific wrath that will characterize the last days of human civilization as we know it. In these pages, it's not always clear exactly how the time schedule goes, whether we're reading a a chronological list of events or whether we're hearing the same events described in a cascading way in different terms. Neither is it always clear to us whose wrath we're talking about. Sometimes it's obviously the intentional 
judgment of a holy God against sin that is being described here in this text. God reaching out in wrath against those who have denied Him, worshipped idols, pursued their own purposes over and against His, whether they be mortals or supernatural beings. Other times, the pain and suffering that is inflicted here seems to be the wrath of evil itself lashing out. The wrath of an evil that is personified here as a dragon, a harlot, a beast, a demon, and sometimes very insidiously in the form of ordinary human beings. In any case, the images presented here stand in such stark and upsetting contrast to the more utopian visions of the future that have been presented so often to our sensibilities in recent days. For we're given this devastating impression that that technology and human collaboration will not be able to create or at least to sustain the new age of harmony and health and happiness for which so many of us still hope. Now, this is not to say that Christians should ever give up the thought of trying to construct a better world. On the contrary, the Bible is clear that come what may, the responsibility and the calling of Christians is to seek to be light in the world, salt for the earth, and that we are to use every single tool and every time at our disposal to be creative influences, to plant the seeds of hope and of health and of joy and of reconciliation wherever we can. But the point that comes home in reading this text is that even with all of these heroic efforts, all of these necessary efforts, the time of final triumph that is to come will be preceded by periods of greater and greater tribulation. This unfolding reality is symbolically heralded in the book of Revelation by the breaking of seven seals on the unfolding scroll of God's plan, by the blowing of seven horns in heaven, and by the pouring out of seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. The early stages of this time of tribulation are described in terms of the hoofbeats of four colored horses. A white one, a fiery red one, a black one, and a pale one, representing in turn a dramatic increase in tyranny, bloodshed, famine, and disease. Do we see in our time the presence of these things? Do we hear the hoofbeats of tyranny, the snorting of disease, the stain of bloodshed, the hollow eyes of famine? This period of the four horses of the apocalypse, as they're called, is followed by a progressive array of cataclysmic 
happenings. Whose descriptions sound uncannily like things that we have at least some reference for in our modern world, like nuclear explosions and asteroids striking the sea and the land. We, we hear of the water supply being polluted and of some thing like the ozone layer disappearing and the sun's heat scorching the land and, and people's flesh. And in time there come, even after these things, a variety of plagues that seem disturbingly like what we could imagine in a world where biotechnology had taken some very unforeseen turns. And there are also descriptions here of, of seasons of demonic activity and angelic attacks of a kind that it's frankly much more difficult to find natural categories for. It's difficult to read all of this. It's difficult to believe even a shred of this without being struck by at least one very pointed question. Maybe it's occurred to you. How could God make or allow this sort of thing to happen. Even when you recognize that the revelation also tells us that those who are sealed, that is, those who are marked by the love of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb is the imagery so often used in this book, even when you know that these sealed ones are going to be protected, spared from the most outrageous implications of so much of this tribulation, even when you realize that much of what is described in these chapters, one could arguably see humanity actually bringing upon itself. The question remains, how could a good and gracious God actually allow such awful things to happen to even a single human being? This is the mystery of the wrath that Revelation says will be unleashed in the last stages of human history. And at times it seems just so unjust. R.C. Sprawl tells a story that casts an interesting light, I think, on this mystery. During his first semester of college teaching, Professor Sproul explained to his class of 250 freshmen that his course required the submission of three short papers. Since this requirement was really very light work for college level, Dr. Sproul said that he expected that these papers would be on his desk by 12 noon on the due date without exception. Well, the first due date rolled around. And around 225 of his 250 students submitted the papers dutifully. The other 25, in that posture of abject humility, native to many an overwhelmed freshman, and 
came and begged for an extension. Please, doctor, they said, we know that you told us that, that you'd give us an F if we got our papers in late, but, but, but you've got to understand, we need a break. We're just getting used to this place. Please give us more time. It will never happen again. Filled with a sense of compassion and pity. Dr. Sproul relented and said, okay, I'll give you an extension, but the next assignment is due October 30th. Do you understand? Oh, yes, we understand absolutely, the student said. When October 30th arrived, so did 200 of the 250 papers. But now Sproul had some 50 students on his doorstep pleading for his grace. Oh, professor, we didn't plan out our time properly. You understand? It's midterms. We've got all kinds of pressures. So many assignments due and a chorus of similar reasons that more than a few of us may have used ourselves at one time or another. And being a gracious man, Sproul relented again but underlined that this was the last time. What do you think happened when November 30th came around? You guessed it. Now there were 100 students who sauntered into the classroom without a worry on their face or a paper in their hand. And when Dr. Sproul asked for their assignments, they said to him, no problem, Prof. They're in the works. Well, you'll have them in a couple of days. Don't worry. And what do you think the response of the 100 was when their teacher opened his black books and wrote the letter F down next to each name? It was unmitigated fury. And a wild chorus of, that's not fair. That's just not fair. Oh, it isn't? Responded the professor, turning to the first student. Tell me, Johnson, weren't you late the first time and the last time too? Oh, yeah, the boy replied. Okay, said Sproul, I'll be fair. I'll mark you down for an F on that paper, too. Now raise your hand, said Sproul. Any more of you really interested in justice? Sometimes I wonder if we do not live in a world that has progressively become a lot like that college class. I wonder if we as a human race have just experienced God's mercy, God's kindness, God's provision so regularly and for so long that some of us have even stopped valuing it, noticing it, or begun to think that it was ours 
by right? Is it possible that as a race we have grown so accustomed to his grace, wonder Sproul, that when the season of grace finally comes to an appropriate end, when God suggests that he will finally allow the full consequences of sin to catch up with humanity to satisfy justice, or to bring about a period of tribulation that will lead to repentance and change of life, many are absolutely shocked and outraged and mystified, thinking it unjust. But you know, considering the fact that God is holy, Holy, holy claim every creature around the throne. Considering the, considering the reality of the staggering purity and holiness of God, the real puzzle is not the mystery of wrath finally unleashed. It's the mystery of wrath for so long restrained. The wonder is that being as brilliantly pure as he is, God withholds the justice for which we sometimes thoughtlessly clamor and gives us instead the blessings of his grace. The God we know through Jesus Christ is a patient God. He is the master who welcomes those lazy servants who show up in the vineyard ten minutes before closing time and gives them not the boot that they deserve, perhaps, but pays them the same wages as if they'd worked all day long. Grace. And God is is like the father who receives the prodigal son home again. Not with the cold shoulder or the lashing that he deserves, but with an embrace and a a thick slice of fatted calf. Grace. And the God that Jesus shows us is the Lord who greets the deathbed confession of the thief on the cross, not with the skeptical roll of the eyes that it deserves, but with the promise that this very day even you will be with me in paradise. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How many times in my life have I done things, made choices, for which, had I been held accountable, the horror of it all, How about you? 
And even in the period of tribulation that's described in, in the central part of this book of Revelation, we repeatedly see God restraining the full thrust of His justice, holding back His angels, sparing the lives of two-thirds of the people, protecting three-quarters of the land, allowing more and more time for people to repent and turn back to Him. Grace. But as I shared last time in the book of Revelation, makes so graphically clear, even the patience of a gracious God one day runs its complete course. And he who was willing for so long to be the Savior must now be the judge. It's a hard word. But it's a real one. And before the sound of the hoofbeats and the sounding of the horns grows any louder in our time, may many have the ears to hear the voice of one still so eager to be the Savior, saying, Come unto me. Come unto me. Please pray with me. Gracious God and holy God, If there is any aspect of our behavior or our thought life, if there is any dimension of our habits of speaking, spending, striving, that are not truly pleasing in your sight, open our eyes to them. And move us by the power of your Holy Spirit to turn and to seek the renewal which you make possible. And if there be any of us who blindly thought ourselves not really in need of a Savior, assume the blessings were ours by right, then, O oh God, open our eyes as well. And call us back to you. And make us bearers then of a hope that is more persuasive and more enticing and more winsome than any of the other sounds of this world. So send us forth, Lord God, as your refreshed, repentant, and rededicated people. For as long as this time lasts, we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.